Hello, Antifa. <laughs> it's me, Ghazi, the commander-in-chief of the Black Hero Organization. Land back. Land back. Land back. Land back. I heard you had some not-so-nice things to say about me. I heard you had some nice things to say about my hammers. Mm. <laughs> I heard you had not so nice things to do to one of my members, one of my dear, dear members, an African Filipino mother that you doxxed and thought you could get away with it, <laughs> thought we were going to back down, thought we were going to take it. <laughs> That's not going to happen. You messed with the wrong one this time. Hello, my hammers. <laughs> There's something about hearing the Joker say the word doxed that's very funny to me. <laughs> Hello, my dammers. Yeah. Do not share where I live. That's a violation. I heard one of you people fucking doxed me again. I am this guy. <laughs> and we've done clown makeup. I don't know if Jake has, but... I've done I've clown done, makeup. Okay, yeah. But yeah, Anders. We've all done clown makeup. Did it at our live show if anyone came. Yeah. Um, oh, they came. <laughs> God damn. I fucking, I've watched this clip like 10 times since Alex showed it to me the other day. I, something about this guy is so good. So fucking fascinating. He, I, I think he wants to be a Netflix star. And that like he's getting, you know the word out there and that they're going to send like a Netflix crew to film it. Oh, he's like a front facing camera guy. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Osama bin Laden was kind of a front facing <laughs> camera guy. <laughs> yeah, literally <laughs> all of these people are, they don't realize it, but they're basically working in toward the, they're tending in that direction. Would bin Laden have been on TikTok? He would have loved it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Tick tock. He's a terrorist. <laughs> I don't know if he had an internet connection. In, uh, you know what he, they found? On, we didn't get to this on our bonus episode, but on his computer, which they confiscated, he had the movie Ants. Coincidence. To show to his kids. Uh, and he had a lot of pornography and also had a Ron Paul speech uh, because that was like kind of his victory, right? It was Ron Paul in a way. Like it's, and I remember that was the first time I heard as an American, as a youth in America, someone standing up and saying, like, maybe this isn't a good idea to just, like, you know, bomb and invade and interfere with another region of the world constantly. You I know, can't believe didn't you get... this for a different episode. I know. <laughs> I forgot about it. That's a, you got to take notes, folks. Take Ron better notes. Ron Paul was Osama bin Laden's victory. <laughs> I'll tell them next time. <laughs> well, I mean, he didn't achieve... Ultimately, he failed because we did not leave the Middle East. It got worse, but it got people talking, and that's what matters. That's what he wanted to do, was force a discussion. Start the conversation. Yeah. It starts here at Osama <laughs> bin Laden's compound. The only movie viewable inside of Hammer City is Ants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It Ooh. teaches how to be a worker, etc. It's Woody Allen. <laughs> I love him. He has, like, the funniest thing about the hammer guy is that he is clearly improvising because he's doing this thing where you start a sentence and you're not really sure how you're going to end it. Where you're like, so I heard someone did something, made something not nice about 
Nee. <laughs> it's really, but he's got so much stage presence. It just yeah. still works. He's a great performer. I want, I bet he kind of reminds me of a Showtime dancer. You think? Kind, kind of. Yeah. I don't, that just I'll feels probably like a get thing. In trouble for saying that. Yeah, that's racist. That's just safe to say. <laughs> <laughs> but the the bravado and like the you know the the way his legs are uh, placed uh-huh. reminds me of a Showtime dancer, like um, you know getting ready to announce that they're about to dance on the subway. It's hammer time. <laughs> <laughs> For just five dollars, you can support the arts. <laughs> no, wait, wait, maybe he's uh, he sells nutcrackers, those Kool Aid things full of uh, <laughs> liquor that you get on Coney Island. He's like, is anyone trying to get hammered? Because <laughs> they have to raise money for this compound, I'm assuming. So they have to go around yeah. selling candy bars or something. How are they? Oh, I they're. Fund me. I think they're funded by. Uh, Caucasians trying to like displace their guilt, I, like it's, they have like a ally price or something. Let's let's establish for anyone l- listening. <laughs> do either of you guys know what this is really? Because I have, have a vague idea. I want to fucking research it and do an episode about it. But I had vaguely heard of this bizarre kind of. Pull up the GoFundMe. Pull up the GoFundMe. People said they're like they're like fascists. It's like a bunch of they're weird anti-Semitic. Black- yeah. But they were, I think, in Florida and tried to create a community in Florida, and I believe now it's in Colorado. Um, oh, but they and they've the GoFundMe is down. So Hammer City is a mythical thing that moves around, and they okay. try to start. No, I'm asking. Oh, um, no, I think they wanted to do Florida, and then that's what you I'm know. saying. They tried to make Hammer City in Florida. It didn't right. work. So their their thing is they're trying to build Hammer City. Yes, they're trying to build a city. And do it with the by raising money from people who want to assuage their guilt. And what happens at the city? Okay, so I have the Organizing. website up. I'm on blackhammer.org, okay. which is my homepage, so it was easy to get to. And <laughs> uh, they describe Hammer City. Hammer City is Black Hammer Organization's latest project, so it's very exciting. It's a city for people of all color to be free. There's uh, jobs, housing, food, health care, no cops, no rent, no coronavirus, and no white people. Which does seem like it goes against item one, but also like if it, it's Hammer City, baby. Well, and, uh, it goes against item one. It also goes against the Joker guy, who's their commander in chief. He's white. Right, but if right. the Joker wanted to come in, he would find a way around it. He's a black guy, but he's his white. He has a white face because he's the Joker. I'm finding wild inconsistencies in the rules of Hammer City. <laughs> Well, you're not allowed to go, Jake, so don't try. <laughs> you could go. You could get, you know. Well, I want. I don't know no, how to I'm enforce that. It's ambiguous. I yeah. could go and I could say I'm half Mexican. It's complicated. My dad's a mestizo. Alex doesn't understand this and calls me white all the time. It's really fucking weird. <laughs> well, I'm just saying I think Hammer City, did, how chill do you think they are about it? Do you think they have any chill about this at all? Honestly, this is a, we should test this to just test the theory. See if of you race. could get in. Yeah. yeah, I should try to get into Amber City. <laughs> <laughs> There's a separate campaign to send Jake to Amber City. <laughs> well, it's interesting because the Nazis, and I am not comparing them to the Nazis, uh, but they did do this where it was actually not as cut and dry with the, the sort of ethnic hat sorting. Like, there were, like, people who were, like, part Jewish who would, they'd be like, eh, fine. Uh, you know, it was, it was very, like, case ad hoc. 
Yeah. And that's probably what it is here. Well, it's probably because race is a social construct. Right. It's not real. And it's, when you live on the line, it's, it becomes clearly absurd. Yeah. Because it's, it doesn't make any sense, you know? Right. That's why, yeah, the, the classic what are you question. Yeah. It's a little screwed up. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go to Hammer City and debate race and ethnicity with the Joker guy. What race <laughs> is the Joker? What I know, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> what race is this guy? But like from the the comics, like the Mark Hamill Joker in Batman the Animated Series, you don't see. I, well, I think he's like. I think his skin is permanently like that in that can in that version anyway. Well, the guy who becomes the Joker, the Arthur Fleck he's origin white, yeah. guy, is white. But what ethnicity? What is right? He? That's a good question. He could be part Portuguese. You think he's a pork chop? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying Joaquin Phoenix has an olive complexion, so the, the Portuguese is a is a possibility. I feel like in the comics he was like a redhead. I think he looked like you. He was he was a greenhead. I mean, you mean but pre no, I'm talking, accident. I'm talking the human that becomes the Joker. I'm not racially analyzing what the Joker end product <laughs> technically is because I think it's its own race. <laughs> you know, what would be funny if if they because the you know I think it's good that. Uh, Marvel and DC, and DC actually was at the forefront of this, just gonna put that out there, uh, making more heroes of color, but what if they had just, like, done it only with villains, and all of the heroes had remained white, and just <laughs> that's something that could have happened, easily <laughs> a little awkward yeah um, Not th- I wouldn't want to read that, I'm just saying it would be f- bad and funny no, it'd be kind of cool, because the villains are the cool people, that's true, maybe that could, yeah I, read, totally I hope this that. doesn't make your comic book awkward. <laughs> <laughs> God damn, dude. Someone needs to become Batman and fight the Hammer City Joker. You know what? I, a, this is the last thing we need, actually. That's, <laughs> I feel like this happens every time there's some kind of like communist settlement somewhere. <laughs> there's Batmans showing up, and then they look terrible in real life. You know what? It would be interesting. Uh, you doxed me. Honestly, Batman's main thing is his fear of getting doxed. Right. <laughs> That's and, true. Yeah. That's it, all every superhero. Yeah. And his, Don't tell them which cave. <laughs> God damn it. God damn it. A lot of people eat cum. It's normal. <laughs> uh, I'm a performer. I'm always hiding. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because it's like X-Men, right? It's... Uh, the in sort of the crude um, analogy is the mutants were sort of the integration or the the X Men were integrationists and Magneto was a separatist uh, and it would be interesting to see if their Black Hammer shows up in the comics soon if there's something like that I know that Tanahashi Coates is writing Superman and Superman's going to be black soon whoa okay that is a portal into this this possible new reality yeah the X Men were freaks. We're sending down the hazy coach to fight the Black Hammer guy. I don't want to put that on him. I should. <laughs> it's not his responsibility, but it would be an interesting uh, premise for a comic. All right. Well, if anyone knows the Black Hammer Joker guy, please ask him if he will come on this show and explain <laughs> how his fascist, communist, fascist, whatever the fuck thing, uh, compound works, uh, what race he thinks I am. And um, whether he'll hang out with us. Let's, let's actually like submit you. Let's you send the email and see what they say. 
It, I mean, really, it might so finally solve like a lot of racial discussions in America if we just collectively <laughs> go to the Black Hammer thing and then use it as a litmus test of like, are Italians technically white? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, See, all... this is going to be from an entertainment perspective, though. Like, Jake's going to get in the Black Hammers. Everybody's going to be like, how'd you book that? How do I get in the Black Hammers? <laughs> I can't get any stage time. I'm not in the Black Hammers. We yeah, said Rachel Dolezal. Oh, that would be <laughs> a shit show. Um, it's fun. In D.C., there are a lot of uh, black nationalists, and they will hand out stuff um, to other black people. And I thought about once, I was on a corner, like, just asking them, like, hey, I have a friend who's African-American. Can I, like, pass it along to him? But I didn't do it. Oh, that yeah. way you can see their sweet, sweet literature? Yeah. Or I just want, no, eyes? I just wanted to see what the reaction would be. I think it would probably still be no, but worth, shot, worth a shot. I should have done it. What do you see, think? That's the thing. Go ahead. You have the same kind of twisted spirit. I feel like they should let you into this mountain compound, but you're the last one they're going to let in, Anders. Me? Yeah. yeah. I, I would not get Maybe <laughs> they will think that you're in clown makeup already. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I'm too white to for it to not be unnatural. Yeah. And then, like, at one point, they're all showering, and they're like, why isn't your makeup coming off? And then they realize, like, you're, we've been infiltrated. Oh, wait. This man's not a clown. <laughs> we were all showering at the city-mandated shower time, all black hammers do, and we're looking at Anders. <laughs> oh, wow. What an introduction. God damn, man. Come on the show, Joker guy. All right. Um, well, we're going to have to put a pin in all of that. And... Um, get on to what we're actually talking about today, which is the podcast that I'm assuming we've already been canceled for doing, mm -hmm. uh, which is a podcast about cancel culture, the thing that I um, hate to talk about all the time, and yet we're doing it. Think of it as a once and for all argument. Right. It's going to be, yeah. Um, we had Despite Jake's reputation on the internet in some places as having created it in the first place. Sort yeah. of a Frankenstein's monster situation. We've asked Seth Simons to come on the show and defend his creation, cancel culture. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, writer Ben Burgess, uh, podcaster, you know, person in our sphere, um, wrote a book called Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. And it kind of had a meta journey. I, I think what honestly what happened is he wrote the book and he titled that. And then in between writing it and publishing it, the sort of um, like consensus on what that means shifted a little bit against his favor, <laughs> which is uh, funny, but also sorry. Like a lot of people have, I think what happens, honestly, a lot of comedians chimed in and went, hey, actually, I think this like anti-cancel culture witch hunt is kind of bullshit. And uh, now we have more of a discourse happening around it. And um it's interesting, and we are comedians, and you know, it everything's fine. Guy wrote a book, right? He's doing pro publicity for it, and um, or promo or whatever. And uh, basically, how this happened is that they uh, they pitched it to us, and I said, as long as I can say what I think about it, you know. And Ben's a cool guy, so right. he totally heard us out, and uh, we had a little discussion about something that we might not agree a hundred percent about. And that's okay. It's important, I think, to have self-criticism on the left and uh, to not, you know, totally 
need to agree with people on 100% of everything. Uh, that's, I think, an unhealthy habit. Um, and, you know, it's a complicated discussion. Uh, one of the arguments I've heard against sort of discussing cancel culture is like, oh, well, it means so many different things to different people. That's true. That's also true of socialism or liberalism or neoliberalism or like almost anything that's that's worth talking about. So um, uh, that's, I, I think, uh, it's still a good discussion, important discussion to have. Not ad nauseum, right? We're, we're, probably, we're not going to, this isn't going to be our main shtick. Right? No, this but, is, we're doing it all this week. That way yeah. we can stop. Because right. We uncanceled Osama bin Laden for the bonus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Forgot about that. Uh, you got to listen to the bonus to cancel us for being nice to Osama bin Laden. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of steps. It's a multi-point process. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into it, eh? Hey. Get it. Am I canceled? <laughs> Someone tried to cancel me. Uh, okay. Lock them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Once and for all, I will say, the once and for all, we are going to discuss the unending discourse thing known as cancel culture. We're going to solve it. We're going to solve it today. That way everyone on the internet can shut the fuck up about it. Um, this is something that touches all of us i know it's near and dear to all of our <laughs> lives as people who post on the internet and uh it's sort of creeps back into the conversation every week or so and so um you know i i thought about not doing an episode about it for that reason and i now the more i thought about it the reason i think i wanted to do this is because maybe if we talk about it and just have it it all out and figure it out, uh, then, you know, we can talk about something else. <laughs> um, so in order to do so, uh, we're going to do a little bit of something interesting today, which we don't usually do. We don't usually do uh, talking heads yelling at each other, you know. Um, is that the plan? We're going to yell at each other today? No, I'm not <laughs> planning on yelling, but I am very passionate. No, we're going to get a, a Talking Heads concert album where David Byrne yells at the audience. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's yeah. what we do here. Right. No, no, no. I don't. It's weird. I don't want to premise this like we're going to have a debate. I am only laying that out there in case I'm like, I get, I, this is more for me. I, I don't want anyone to think... I don't want anyone, any of my children who listen to this show to think daddy's angry, you know? Mm. I, uh, <laughs> I, I just have a lot of opinions about this sort of stuff, and so um, this will be interesting. I don't know. Uh, so without further ado, our guest today is a uh, Jacobin columnist, author of Give Them an Argument, and author of the book we'll be talking about, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, Ben Burgess. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Jack. Uh, thanks for coming on. Um, so, 
Uh, yeah, I read your book this week. It was rather enjoyable. It was, um, you know, it was about things that I think about all the time, which I think made it a pretty easy read. Um, I want to go ahead and tell my audience like what what prompted you to write this book. I guess. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so I think that um, you know the the book really. You know, even though the the opinions that it expresses are ones that are sort of uh, mentioned in uh, in the first book uh, about some of the you know the ways that the left um, goes about things in ways that I don't like and you know makes itself less appealing, uh, then I, I think in between I've gotten a lot more frustrated about those things um, basically because of a bunch of different incidents that you know that maybe we can. Uh, um, you know, that, that maybe we can talk about, you know, as, uh, as, as we go on, you know, some that I mentioned in the book, some that I don't mention in the book. Uh, but the, the big claim that I want to make in the book is that, of course, you know, there's, there's cancel culture, which is an imperfect term for what it's supposed to describe. But my general policy is that when at all possible, instead of fighting about which words to use to describe things, I'd like to prefer to fight about the things themselves mm. uh, is what I would think of, right. Is what people now call cancel culture before they call like call out culture in like 2016, maybe uh, is, uh, is roughly a cluster of, of cultural and technological trends. Uh, all of which I think are basically symptoms of our late capitalist hellscape uh, where we're all incredibly atomized. People often feel most connected to others online uh, the for-profit social media uh, platforms have all the same incentives to make their product more addictive that you know Marlboro and Philip Morris do. Uh, most people live, you know, work in uh, non-unionized workplaces, so it's a doxing uh, has a uh, has a special edge, you know, with without wheel employment uh, and a lot of other things that we could talk about that I think go into this. And I think that is a general phenomenon that infects the entire political spectrum. Uh, and, you know, we could talk all day about right-wing and centrist, you know, manifestations of it. Uh, but what I'm primarily interested in in the book is what I think, you know, is wrong with the left, because I want the left to win, and I'm concerned that some of the stuff makes it less likely. So some of that has to do with the particular way that it's that these trends have infected my part of the political spectrum and how they play out there. Uh, some of it has to do with... Um, sort of hysteria about minor political differences among people who, who basically agree. Uh, some of it has to do with certain ways that people are seem to prioritize being performatively radical uh, in various directions uh, over what I would view as, as trying to contribute to uh, to useful political project. And one of the big claims that I make in the book about how all this is ties together, why this isn't just like Ben grumbles about several different subjects, you know, over the course of the book, you know, although maybe that would be the, uh, the more critical you yeah, know, way to, to look at yeah. it, uh, is that I think that I would see all of these things as, you know, what I call in the book uh, pathologies of powerlessness that, mm. uh, that I think at least, you know, I don't want to claim that all this stuff is monocausal. I'm sure you can trace different parts of the problem back to different sources, but I think at least one part of all of these problems is that the serious left, you know, political perspectives to the left of liberalism have been kind of in deep exile from from any form of real world power uh, for a long time, certainly in societies that I know best, like the U.S. and the U.K., 
between the uh, decline of the labor movement, the fact that even like good honorable social democrats like Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn spent most of their lives as extremely marginal backbenchers, and anything more radical than that was totally out in the outer darkness, you know, during the era that's kind of defined by that Margaret Thatcher, Tina thing. There is no alternative. And I think under those circumstances, uh, it is natural, and I think this has to a certain extent happened, uh, that a lot of people with radical left political commitments end up thinking of those commitments in practice less as a serious project to change the material world uh, and more as a kind of symbolic performance of moral commitment. Uh, You know, it's symbolic stand against the many injustices of the world. Uh, And my concern is that when you see it that way, uh, that can very easily shade into spending a lot of time interrogating other people's uh, individual moral commitment. So you end up with this kind of counterproductive moralism, you know, where you spend a lot of time evaluating people's individual character uh, and uh, and also that you you stop worrying as much as you should uh, about um, what appeals to the broadest possible mass of, uh, of people to, to advance that um, you know that political program so that's the stuff I mean we can argue about how widespread some of these trends are uh, certainly a lot of this is, is a matter of degree and it varies wildly. Uh, but it's what I was concerned about in the book and, and what I was trying to push back against in the book. Yeah, well, right off the bat, uh, you know, first of all, uh, I have to compliment you because you were so articulate about these things that are so amorphous and people are often just railing at and uh, people are so angry about and can't really put into such succinct words. So I really enjoyed reading your book because I was like, OK, this is the argument like laid out. This is what it is, you know, um, I guess for me. I agree with a lot of what you're diagnosing, although I will, I, I think I'm going to push back against the, mm-hmm. sort of the idea that this is a, this qualifies as a collective phenomenon, because what I find myself saying to people a lot of the times is, you're talking about 10 different fucking things, and they all are, they just require different arguments. Like the at-will employment thing is, it's a real problem, but when you're talking about that, you're talking about capitalism. That, that is the underlying problem there, and not huh. a social phenomenon, in my opinion. Um, and I guess for me, the way, the way I see it, though, that my main kind of disagreement, I think, with the entire premise of what's going on here is, uh, is even if I, you know, if we kind of agree that all these things are happening, I just don't understand the call to action. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if, if the entire point of looking at and diagnosing all this stuff is to say, look, you know, I mean, it, it looks bad sometimes when we're too, you know, cringy and weird on the internet or when we get characterized a certain way. How do we fix that? I mean, is there, there doesn't really seem to be a cohesive, we're not in a political party. There's not a, you know, mm-hmm. one apparatus that we all communicate through and organize through. And uh, it has all these, I guess, these, I would strike me as unfixable problems. So like uh, in the, Second chapter of your book, you talk about the DSA convention that Tucker Carlson, you know, showed his audience and he cherry picked and showed the most cringy parts of it. Everyone remembers the, you know, don't clap because it's offensive to deaf people stuff or whatever. Um, You know, and and we could stop doing that. I'm sure, you know, you could go around and and, uh, make a point of this at like DSA organizing. But to me, it strikes me as kind of a fallacy because 
your enemy is going to hold you to the standard of the worst thing you've ever done, no matter what. Sure. And we are a lot of people, so they will find something cringe to define us all by. It kind of reminds me of like when the Democrats are running, uh, you know, in the primaries and stuff, and they go. Should Bernie Sanders call himself a socialist? You know, they called fucking Joe Biden a socialist. Right. Like they're going to call you that no matter what. You know, so I, to me, I have more of a positivist outlook on this sort of stuff. Where I'm like, let's not be defined by the worst thing about us. They're going to do that anyway. I think we get people on our side by, you know, because of the best thing about us. And it's been my experience also with like. You know, even people that like listen to this podcast, I've I've met like on the road and stuff. They're terribly sincere and mm-hmm. and don't seem to be here for you know uh, for negativity, like for for uh, us taking down and dunking on some other person as much as they just like us. Which that is a thing that people <laughs> do in the left, and that is a way to get, to garner an audience. Um, so that isn't to say that that's not a, a useful tactic, but. Um, but I, I guess I just, I don't know. I mean, what's, what's the plan? Like, what, what is this all implying? I guess is what I'm asking. Like, how, how do you, how would you propose to fix all this stuff? Sure. Uh, by the, by the way, uh, I, I do think it's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of funny to me. I mean, I, I guess maybe this just shows what a, uh, like says something about the toxic waters that I spend way too much time waiting in. That you know that there was there was all the setup at the beginning about how okay you know we normally don't do this debate stuff but you know maybe we're going to start you know yelling at each other. It's like I don't know. I mean I'll, I'll you know I mean I I do way too much stuff like that. I've you know debated <laughs> We'll we'll call you a beta at some I, point. I, yeah, no, we'll call you Ben. I, I, I do I do like coming on here and it's like all right, it's gonna be a lot. Of, okay, here's some mild thoughtful disagreements. Uh, yeah, 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 so, yeah, yeah, no, I, be an extreme glass houses situation for anyone here to be throwing the beta word around. I, I will have you know I have a girlfriend, so. Okay. All right. Yes, we know you have one girlfriend and you're 30. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I'm talking about. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know why I imagined this was going to be like tough crowd or something. I don't know. (laughs) Well, it feels like that's what the internet does. It's like it magnifies what are sometimes legitimate disagreements, but it blows them way out of proportion. And, you know, those discussions are important to have. I think self-criticism is is important on the left. And if we were having this argument over Twitter, this could elevate into an actual, like, fuck you, Ben, thing really quick because of the anonymity. (laughs) Right. But now we're... Oh, right. Sure. Plus, you're looking at 280 character uh, snippets of of what somebody's somebody's said and all of the incentives uh, are to uh, all the incentives are to just sort of take the um, you know like your immediate gut reaction to it and uh, and run with it like that's the you know so like one of my you know it's a very small thing you know but one of my all-time favorite examples is last summer um, Wendell Potter who for any of your listeners who don't know who this guy is he used to be a health insurance executive uh, and he like he'd like lobby Congress and stuff in that capacity oh no uh, I don't want to hear anything else after, after you say that I'm done <laughs> and I think like 10 years ago or something, he had a come to Jesus moment about it. And he's actually dedicated his life since then, uh, since leaving the industry to campaigning for single payer. And last summer, uh, he, he tweeted something that was like a very typical Wendell Potter tweet. If you follow him, it's the kind of thing he does all the time where he said, um, oh, the fact that people don't uh, know how much uh, single payer would help us during the pandemic is a sign of how people believe the lies that I told, you know, when I was a health insurance executive 
and somebody who you know it's not important you know who uh, a I think he was like a Marvel comics writer or something some like ten thousand follower kind of account sure uh, quote tweeted that and said oh my god the fucking piece of shit actually admitted it and uh, got like seventy five thousand likes before enough people pointed out to him uh, who Wendell Potter was that he took it down and what always struck me about that is that it would have taken three seconds to click on Wendell Potter's name on the top of that tweet and see his bio and and see like um, organizations with with the phrase single payer in them in the bio. Uh, but if you know the point is not like to you know morally condemn this person for not doing that, although also you know do better. But uh, but just to think about the the incentives, you know the strug the feedback loops that are built into platforms like Twitter because. Yeah, why spend the uh, the three seconds checking out who this guy is when you get that immediate endorphin rush of you know likes and retweets you know for uh, for throwing that first stone? So yeah, I think that the platforms themselves are a problem. And going back to one of the first things you said, I think that um, you know I think it's totally fair to say that if we're talking about like cancel culture's broader cult, you know, as a broader phenomenon, uh, there are a lot of different you know causes of it that require very different solutions uh and and i think that's totally right uh and in fact i think you know to some extent it's depressing news because uh you know if i'm you know part of what worries me is uh, the ways that these cultural trends impact uh the political culture of the uh, the left uh then it's really bad news if some of these trends require solutions that would that would like involve the left winning politically uh you know since since there's a there's a vicious uh, there's a vicious circle there that, you know, that we, so in order to do things like rebuild the labor movement and that will employment, maybe nationalize Twitter. Uh, so, you know, so we, it, it's no longer has the same profit incentives that it does. Uh, but, uh, but I think that my claim at least uh, would be that those things, even if they do, I mean, come from, from different sources and are to a certain extent, you know, uh, different discussions uh, do, uh, do contribute to a, a broader problem. Uh, and so that's one claim. And then the other claim is that the way in which some of this stuff is caught on in the left uh, is, a, is a symptom uh, of, of, a, of a more general problem uh, with the left that it's, it's worth being aware of, that, you know, that if, if we do have this tendency uh, to reduce politics to, uh, to a kind of moral performance that manifests in all of those ways, it's worth being aware of. Now, I mean, the criticism you just made that I think is the most fair, uh, that, I mean, I, I think is, um, I mean, not that anything you said was unfair, but, you know, that, they, that I think is, like, the most cutting uh, is, uh, okay, what's the plan? How are we going to deal with it? Uh, and I'm certainly not going to pretend that I, you know, that, like, I have, like, okay, here's the thing that, what, I can do, uh, left podcasts as a whole can do, uh you know, DSA even can do that's that's going to uh, that's going to solve the problem. I think, as you say, you know, we don't have some sort of uh, party where we have a decision-making apparatus where we can do things that would help with this, which of course is a problem in itself and, and a much larger discussion. Uh, but uh, but I also do want to push back a little bit uh, about the idea that um, well. Um, people are going to find something to cherry pick or they'll represent us in the worst light anyway. So therefore, and maybe this is a little bit of a caricature of what you're saying. You can clarify, but like, you know, but but therefore, like we shouldn't worry too much about it. Uh, And I'll even say like, even in terms of the metaphor, you know, with Democrats and elections, 
Uh, and, you know, I've never, okay, actually, I shouldn't say I've never, because I'm sure there have been times when I've nodded that long with it or like retweeted people saying it. But I currently, I right now, right, uh, am not crazy about uh, the way of defending using the socialist label where you just say, oh, well, you know, whatever, they'll call us socialists anyway. Uh, I, I, I know that's like a very popular line. And like I said, I'm sure it's one that I've repeated in the past. But on reflection, I think that that's maybe the wrong way to defend it. I think that I think the right way to defend it is, is that you're saying something important when you call yourself a socialist, something that's worth saying. So even if there might be some political cost to it, you know, maybe the uh, the cost is worthwhile. Uh, and uh, and I think that it is a little dangerous to to go from. Okay, we we have enemies who are going to try to cherry pick things and are going to try to put everything in the worst possible light, which is you know certainly a true premise. Uh, therefore, let's not um, let's not worry about it and 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 let's not like make an effort to stop giving them so much ammunition. I think we should make an effort to try to stop giving them so much ammunition. Like the fact that uh, that you know there are these people who are DSA organizers. Uh, who were announcing those rules or, you know, intervening on the convention floor in that way, knowing that this isn't like some Breitbart thing where they send, you know, where like Tucker Carlson sent in someone with a hidden camera, that they were streaming this to the world. Uh, and uh, and I think it is a really bad sign uh, that people were acting this way, even though uh, they, uh, they, you know, even though they knew that. Uh, and uh, and I think that that maybe is a symptom of what I'm talking about. And I also think that it is a problem that, surely out of like the 1500 people or whatever who are hearing uh who are sitting there on the floor um you know and hearing this list of of rules uh you know no no clapping you know no loud noises no strong sense in the chill out room uh etc uh that nobody is saying anything and i understand why nobody's saying anything because you don't become a socialist in order to argue with crazy people about whether it's okay to clap uh, you know, you become one because you want to do something about capitalism and imperialism and police violence and all of those things. Uh, and so you have much bigger fish to fry. And this seems like a really annoying, uh, you know, diversion. Uh, and I totally get that. Uh, but I also think that uh, part of the problem and part of why I wrote the book is that if the only people who are talking about this stuff are the ones who are the least appealing faces of the left, then that becomes what people associate with us. And so I guess I would see the goal of writing the book, of sort of making the argument, saying, hey, here's the problem. Here's why it's a problem. Here's where I think it comes from, even if there's no sort of neat and tidy solution attached to it. Uh, as one, I do think that, as you as you said, about your know, listeners and all that stuff, lots of people, including lots of people who might act in some of the ways being criticized in the book, are extremely earnest people who, who want to build a movement and might just never have thought about it in those terms. And it might actually get some people to do better. I, I wouldn't rule that out. Uh, the other thing is that even if it doesn't, even if for the sake of argument, nobody is, is convinced by anything uh, in the book, which I think is too, is too pessimistic. But even if that's the case, I would still argue that it's a useful thing to, to do. Uh, and I know this like touches right on the thing that like a lot of people, you know, say, I don't know, you're like, you know, complaining about canceling comedians while the world burns. Uh, but I, I think it's a useful exercise for uh, for a couple reasons, even beyond convincing people to act differently. Uh, and I know this has been a really long answer, but this will be the, the end of it. Uh, that you know, one of uh, you know, one of those 
is is just to kind of keep up morale, you know, for for, for people who uh, who are often really frustrated and worn down by this, of whom I think they're a legion on the uh, contemporary left. And the other one is that I think, you know, at least planting a flag for, hey, not only could you be a leftist without uh, without doing some of the stuff, or even if you have a problem with some of the stuff, but you should have a problem with some of the stuff in order to be a leftist because it undermines our political goals. Uh, then I think that that sends a useful signal to uh, to persuadable people who might see some of the things that are being described in the book, and say, Ugh, "I don't I don't want to join that club, right?" Like, well, like that's that's that seems like incredibly unappealing. But then if you can say, "Oh, um, hey, check it out, right? Check out that you know there are there is clearly a a group of uh, of people uh, who who are on the left who are socialists." Uh, who can't stand this stuff any more than I can, uh, then I think, I hope at least, it makes it a little bit easier to come around. Well, one, th- I did kind of want to clarify something because sure. this is something I've been thinking about. Uh, and this, to be clear, this is not an argument I've seen you make or suggest, mm-hmm. but um, there's a tweet going around a little while ago where someone said, you know, third hand, that there's a, a quote unquote just working class person, not political person, who came to a DSA meeting. And oh, then, like, they were, like alienated by pronouns or something. Exactly, yeah. And that's yeah. something I think of because, like, I I think it's obviously good to respect people's pronouns. I know you know Natalie Wynn has said, like, she is a, a woman, and it's frustrating for her to constantly have to to uh, announce that. Um, but like, how do you strike that balance of like actually respecting these things and doing things that are good, right? Respecting people's pronouns while not alienating people who are not politicized, because you know the majority of people probably don't. Uh, do that yet but I you know part of me really thinks that we society as a whole is kind of going in that direction so if like the left is kind of on the vanguard of that is that is it in some way sort of just like unavoidable that that's gonna turn people off or or you know are you know I I think in some ways that when we get stuck on stuff like this it's it's unfair that we are tasking ourselves with having to fix all of society's problems in order to have a left movement. However, I will concede that uh, they certainly attempt to make it that way because the people we're up against have normalcy on their side. And so that anyone within the realm of normalcy who is just, uh, you know, an American liberal, and I mean that in the classical sense, like either fucking ideology in this country, um, is not held to the standard of everyone in their group because they're not challenging anything. So... It, it is, it's unfair that we're in this situation, but I mean, I guess it is kind of true. They will literally yeah. use anything against us, and that's just how power works, right? Right. Well, I guess the point I'm getting at is, like, there's got to be some way to strike a balance where we are, you know, very clear about not uh, tolerating racism or homophobia uh, or any bigotry, but at the same time, we're, like, a little more relaxed when it comes to people uh you know, making an uh oh, you know, accidentally yeah. misgendering somebody. Or, I, I think you know, I don't want to put that on trans people. Obviously, to you know, have to you know, they can react any way they want. But like, as a yeah, collective, I yeah. Well, I think that's true. But I, I, another thing I want to kind of push back about on this is like, you always hear this argument that, and this is very popular in like the you know on Twitter and in like the post left or whatever the fuck you want to call that whole thing. 
is that um, you know we're alienating the lumpen proletariat and that every working class guy is Archie Bunker or whatever. But if we understand the, what the working class means to be this huge group of people, it also is the person who is benefits from the pronoun. Yeah, thing. absolutely. And so sometimes I think you kind of get into this like uh, plus one, minus one kind of back of the napkin math when you're trying to work this out. And you're like, well, if I alienated the Archie Bunker guy, but I got the trans woman into the DSA, if, yeah. and if there's no way to get them both, is, isn't that still kind sure. of a win? Because, I mean, I've met people like who uh, – I have a friend who's a comic who, like – during 2016, all these people were saying like, oh, you guys got to stop being birdie bros. Stop being so angry and mean on the internet and stuff. You're making us look bad. It was one of those fucking arguments. It was like a tone policing thing. And then I met this comic who uh, used to be a conservative. And then he, like, at one point, he told me that he got socialism pilled. And he, like, read all these books and stuff. And it, I was joking with him about it one night, late at night, just drinking shit after a show. And he was like, honestly, I thought you guys were pussies. And then I heard, like, all the jokes. and He liked that we were mean on the internet. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, one of the things that, that you could make an argument is turning people off is, like, turning some other person on. And I don't know how to <laughs> quantify this in a way that says which one is, you know, to use the, the math, you know, the philosophy math you use in your book or whatever. Which one of these has a bigger, um, what's the word I'm looking yeah, for? Yeah. Uh, uh, utility, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I, I get I get that, uh, and and I think I'm sure that you're right that sometimes there are trade offs that are just like inevitable, right? You know, you want to get everybody, but you know, as Mick Jagger so wisely teaches us, you know, you can't always get what you want. You know, you, mm-hmm. you might have to. Uh, so I, I mean, I think, um, I, and I'm also a little skeptical, uh, which is funny because I actually do have like a real story that somebody told me that's sort of like the thing that was going around, but not exactly uh, that. But I do tend to think when I see that, like I, I take I take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. Like it's a little bit too, um, you know, uh, it's a little bit too pat, right? You know that like oh that you know that they you know the the worker came and you know they didn't like the pronoun yeah. thing. Uh, but um, but I I think that you know you mentioned uh, you mentioned Natalie Wynn and uh, and that that is actually also an interesting thing for for the trade offs right there, right? Because. Uh, even within uh, the uh, the trans community, uh, somebody like like Natalie, who is a um, you know binary uh, passing trans person, uh, you know, like she her point was that it's kind of frustrating that she can go to a, you know pre pandemic obviously she can go to a sports bar in North Carolina and be missed and mammed all night with no problem, and then she goes to like lefty meetings uh, where it's um, like you know, 15 cis people in her and, uh, and everybody's going around saying their pronouns and she can kind of, you know, feel the people, you know, like, like, like swiveling over. Right. It's like, eh? right. You know, yeah, this is for you. It's funny. Uh, yeah. and it's, it's like a little bit, you know, it's a little bit innately uncomfortable. Uh, but of course other people who are non-binary or non-passing might have good reasons to feel differently about right. it. Uh, in this particular case, I, I will offer a, uh, you know, the kind of pat solution that I said earlier, I don't necessarily have for a lot of this stuff, which is that like my, like the one piece of practical advice I would actually give if you're running a meeting on this is um, just give everybody name tags. If they want to write down their pronouns on there, they can, they can do that. And, you know, and, and that way, you know, that they, they have, you know, their, their preferences expressed if they feel like expressing a, uh, a what if a, a they preference. can't read Ben, did you ever think about that? Someone yelling that at you at a DSA convention. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like say comrade caucus. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, right. Uh, and, and, and I think, and, and I guess I would also just say, like, okay, uh, can we always please everybody? Of course not. Uh, but uh, is, can we make some, some sort of broad judgments, you know, without sort of having an Archie Bunker oversimplified idea of, uh, you know, of what the working class is, which to be fair, I don't think most people with these concerns have, although also when you get into people who are like the kind of like, weirdo insufferable hipsters who would call themselves post left maybe a few of them do um you know and i think i tend to think that a lot of those people um you know my, my friend adam proctor has this nice phrase about you know it's the uh, the basement of the vampire's castle you know people who are like the the mirror image of like of like the worst sort of most insufferable woke scold but their whole thing is like somehow left or post left anti-wokeness uh, and or I don't know something you know I'm sure they'll nitpick that characterization but it's it's like you know but it's like they're they're opposed to the first group of people but they're doing all the same stuff uh, and uh, and and some of that does does spill over into really stupid directions I also tend to think we're talking about like ten people but um, but I think that broadly speaking taking that out of out of out of consideration, right? Like, because of course, I never want to say nobody says X, right. because you can always find somebody, right? Like, there's there's always somebody who says it. You know, there's this. You know, it's like that Cicero line about how there's no opinion so absurd that some philosopher has not defended it. Well, look, there's definitely no opinion so absurd that nobody on Reddit has defended it. <laughs> uh, but um, but it, it is. But I think broadly speaking, taking that out of the equation, uh, I think that there's. I, I do think that, sure, of course, you need to strike that balance, uh, you know, that actual bigotry, right, should be off limits. Like if, if, if somebody, you know, as, as our, you know, Michael Brooks would always say, right, if, if somebody says, hey, uh, I, I like you, I want to support you, I want to be part of your movement, but uh, I really want to be able to discriminate against trans people and, you know, and, and, uh, and, and can, how about that, right? That's a very short conversation. Uh, but uh, but I, I, I do think that it is still the case that most people who exist outside of certain political subcultures, uh, and and I mean most people, like I really mean that. I don't mean like most like white male people or anything like that. You know, I think most people of of any race, sexuality, gender identity, any of that stuff, outside of certain political subcultures see something like nobody's allowed to clap, uh, you know, see something, um, you know, see something like um, somebody, you know, somebody like, for that matter, you know, like the uh, the Joe Rogan thing where, you know, where Rogan has, has said some bad stuff, right? Like, it's, I'm certainly not going to defend everything that he's ever said. But I do tend to think that the number of people uh, who, you know, from various backgrounds, who basically think that he's a likable guy, uh, vastly outnumber, you know, the uh, the number of people who who have a giant problem with him, uh, and uh, and that you know when you get stuff like uh, you know people saying, oh, you know, Bernie, you know, Bernie shouldn't have, have accepted or embraced or you know, touted. That was a word I, I saw used a lot during that discussion. Touted uh, the uh, the endorsement of this this problematic person, you know, Joe uh, Joe Rogan, you know, because because we only want the support of, uh, of people who don't have any bad takes or, you know, or, or, yeah. or you know, whatever. Like, I, I think that that's something, 
I think that that's the kind of thing that that I think, you know, without claiming to have perfect information, that we have like some surveys of how many people are going to be alienated by this, how many people are going to be alienated by that. I think we can broadly say that acting like that uh, isn't a good look and isn't helpful for assembling kind of the the biggest possible coalition of people to actually win. Yeah, liberals always use words like that, like touted. They're always like, my favorite one is glorify. Everything is like, how dare you glorify? Which is so dramatic. Joker. Glorify. (laughs) You know, you're attributing glory to it. You know, like, usually when you're accused of glorifying things, you're just saying you kind of like them. Yeah, I don't think I've ever glorified anything in my life. That seems very excessive. Um, Rogan has a big listenership. He He should be glorified for doing that. It's pretty impressive. I guess to me, it's just when you make arguments like, you know, well, there's more people that like Joe Rogan than are, uh, you know, really, really resentful and worked up about him. I think you're right. But I think that also kind of means something that conflicts with the argument here, which is that there aren't that many people that are this cringe. They're just outliers. Mm -hmm. And to me, uh, I want to kind of lay out two things that I think are kind of interesting and relevant here. One is the powerlessness thing. I think you're right about this. I've been thinking about this a lot, and if you're a listener, like you like my shit, you've heard me on three other podcasts talking about this, I apologize. It's just on my mind lately, but I've been thinking a lot about this thing um, they talk about in an Adam Curtis documentary about Edward Bernays, the PR guy, the, the guy who invented the, the field of PR or whatever, who's a, a psychology guy, is a nephew of Sigmund Freud. He did this thing where in the 1950s, if you uh, bought a, uh, a, a box of powdered cake mix at the supermarket when we were like setting up suburban fallout America or whatever, you would take it home and the instructions were pour the powder in a bowl, mix it with water, put it in the oven, you have a cake. And they never sold. People didn't like it, right? And right. So what they did... <laughs> In order to fix this problem, you have to have some like eggs and stuff so you feel like you're cooking. They unpowdered the egg, and now the instructions when you get one of those cake mixes are to fucking break an egg, right? And so, what does this tell us? This tells us that we live in a world in which we have no meaning and we have no power, so we have to make up shit to trick ourselves into thinking that we have agency and meaning in all these things. And I think that that is probably what's happening in a lot of these things that you're identifying with tankies being too cringe on the internet and with the DSA being, you know, a Portlandia sketch, essentially. However, I think that expands all the way out like a fucking kaleidoscope into us talking about those people. I think this is also kind of meaningless. (laughs) And the reason I say this is because, and the reason I think I wanted to kind of have this entire conversation is because, you know, the title of your book is uh, Sympathetic to Comedians. But Mm. I'm a comedian. And in my experience as a comedian... You know that you you don't deserve any sympathy. Yeah. (laughs) Well, kind of, because what, what I've noticed with social media recently is I think that people are frustrated with it because it came about very quickly too quickly. I'm a bit of an ANCOM guy. I think it's it came about too fast for what we've been evolved to deal with, right? Our lizard brain can't handle dealing with millions of people. It's designed to you know, or designed, evolved to, to, to deal with, you know, a hundred people or whatever. And so this thing came about and it's fucking with us, but I have a unique perspective because I've been traveling around trying to tell jokes to people in bars and shit for fucking 15 years. And I think I was aware before my friends who are experiencing this now, how much people actually are horrible and how much they actually kind of will say dirty, nasty, cringy fucking things because I uh, hang out at the bar after I've done a show and I hear people and it's exactly like a fucking 
Twitter fight or a YouTube comment section. It's it's alarming. It's stuff you don't want to hear, yeah. but I'm kind of used to it. And so when people, I think, empathize with comedians for being canceled, what they're seeing usually is like a famous rich person like Dave Chappelle or mm-hmm. Bill Burr who has lived a life without as much feedback as they're currently getting. And those people are now successful and they're famous. And so they had a fucking like a rude awakening one day when social media popped up and the people that they usually hide from in their green room are now like able to comment directly at them. And so they're talking about, you know, being persecuted in ways that I'm sorry, they're just not like Dave Chappelle is the most famous working comedian right now. And he's always talking about being canceled. And it's like, in what way? Like you're fucking fine, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think that what's going on there is, we're see you're you're seeing something that was already there and all of what we're doing right now is trying to grapple with that and assign some meaning to it and it's 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 unfortunately it is it's not that it should be happening or shouldn't be happening it's that it is happening it just is this is the new reality and i think that we have a, a like a choice here to sort of you know, evolve or sink into the tar pit. And I guess I can't help but be reminded of someone like Bill Cosby, another comedian, when, you know, he used to say, pull your damn pants up, you know, to people. And it was, you ask yourself, what is going on here? Why is this guy so concerned with respectability? Well, he's an old man. I I think that that, that, also everything else he did aside, that has nothing to do with what I'm saying here, but like, But I think that well, we know what happened. We know what he did. <laughs> yeah. You don't not know what he did. That's just one thing that happened. The tendency to become alarmed at um, these outliers and be afraid that we're being defined by them, I think also comes from a place of powerlessness. And I think it's a little bit of like, like in the case of Cosby, I'd call it cane shaking. Like I would tell someone mm. like that, like you're this new reality is it's here to stay and you're just going to have to fucking deal with it. And I don't think it means what you think it means that young, you know, black guys in the nineties were sagging their pants and stuff like that. Everything's going to be okay. Um, can I, uh, can I expand like on this thought for a second? Because I just want to like get this out there in the front. This is like my least favorite topic of all time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It just, uh, I don't even like, it just, like, like Ben was saying earlier, there is a, a bit when you get into politics and you're excited to do socialism where uh, uh, when you're at the DSA convention, the clapping to irritate the hearing impaired people thing just is not important to you because you want to talk about what the convention's about or whatever. Um, but that said, regardless of whether or not uh, whoever is getting whether Dave Chappelle deserves to be taken down or if it's an actual takedown or uh, if he shouldn't be attacked like that or not. The problem I always have with these cancel culture debates is I can't wrap my mind around like the material basis for them. Like um, when, when you look at like when, when the conservatives are upset about something, you'll see this on Fox news all the time. You'll, you'll have a, these cultural attacks that are, you know, Tucker Carlson will be on TV talking about the the degradation of the wet ass pussy. The wet ass pussy came on TV <laughs> and it made my child upset with me and I'm losing her values every day. And I guess uh, what, what Ben was saying earlier that um, the cancel culture stuff does fill the same role as politics in a way that can 
that is I think is bad, but it also does seem like innately tied in with our situation. And by uh, tying your horse to the wagon of trying to stop the cancel culture from happening, I feel like it puts you in the same place as the Fox News anchor, which is just like, cut it out. Stop. Stop listening to rap. Like there's there's nothing strategically you can do about it. So yeah, yeah, that's kind of the main thing I, I think about this is there isn't anything you can do. It's just it sucks that it's real. And the, the, the what most people do when they're confronted with this stuff is run away from it. And just like, you know, people always say, oh, just log off and just don't use social media and stuff like that. And it's like, well, fine, that's fine if you're talking about your personal life. But, uh, you know, if we are trying to build a movement, then, yeah, we have to use the Internet. And it just sucks. It just sucks. It's a fucking reality. But I don't know. I mean. Listen, I have been canceled like insane amounts of times. I've never had it affect me in a way where I lost a job, thankfully, because I'm scrappy and I fucking get by with you know all sorts of weird grifts and stuff and uh, do this show, you know. And I've never had. Uh, oh my god, the fu- this fucking piece of shit actually admitted it. He's a grifter. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, he admitted. Anders is gonna fire you. Yeah, <laughs> well, a grifter in the in the in the economic way. We, we actually are con artists and <laughs> yeah, uh, like literally are working grifts. Right. Yeah, we're doing you know, stuff. Like, like he's sending like uh, you know Nigerian prince emails to people and stuff like that. Right. If yeah. only I, I was sending those and not getting. Yeah, uh, you should be sending those. <laughs> Anders got got by one of those. It was a phone call. Yeah. They, <laughs> It's um, far more sophisticated, yeah. very extremely sophisticated. I, I, I mean, I certainly don't want to. I certainly don't want to to uh, to be, you know, shaking my cane and uh, and and doing, uh, you know, and, well, uh, and let me, or, 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 or or being Bill Cosby, even in a non-rapey sense, you know, like it's just a bold, <laughs> But bold. believe me, I did not mean to call you Bill Cosby. Uh, <laughs> it just seems like sometimes you're the same as Bill Cosby. If that makes sense. <laughs> That makes sense. Yeah. But, but, but what I'm saying, the reason I'm, I'm talking about this is because, uh, like, I, people fucking hate me, you know. And I have had I had to get a new phone number this year because my fucking phone number got leaked by people on the internet. All of my private life is on display. I've had fucking all my nudes are just all out there and shit. It's insane. People hate me so much, and I fucking log on to this app, and it sometimes like. I want to tell you, like, oh, it's no big deal as a kind of an anti-cancel culture person, but that's not true. It fucking hurts. It hurts my feelings. Like, I hate it. And sometimes when I'm in a more of a depressive swing than a manic one, I it really fucking bothers me. But it's it's just people being mean. It's not like like I still exist in spite of all this stuff, and actually. What I think, my grand theory of all this stuff from my own personal experience is the reason that it ultimately doesn't bother me is because I am engaged in kind of a meaningful activity in making this podcast and doing DSA stuff. And so I don't have an empty life where eventually that sort of stuff could fill and become the meaning, which I think is how you become a reactionary of some sort or like a weird basement of the vampire castle person where that that, becoming obsessed with that just becomes the end all be all of you yeah know, and, and, and there can be and there can be a really bad cycle uh where people do either just become some basement of the vampire castle weirdo or like in some cases you know actually like drift to the right politically uh because uh they i mean i i see this all the time if somebody's uh, you know if the people that you used to associate with have kind of excommunicated you over nonsense 
then you're going to start hanging out with whoever will still have you. And then people being people over the course of time, you're going to start to be influenced, you know, by, uh, by their way of saying the world. Uh, and, um, you know, I think it'd be probably be contrary to the spirit of the enterprise to, to name anybody. I think that might be happening to, but like it happens. Uh, and, uh, and then, I guess, you know, so so I, I don't I certainly don't disagree with, uh, you know, with everything that, that you're saying. Uh, and, and I think especially going back to the first part about comedy, uh, then, you know, I think there are at least like three reasons you could have a problem with sort of like weird moralistic denunciations of, of comedians of the sort that you, know, you often see online and sometimes also offline. Uh, and, and ranking them from like the least important to the most important, I think the least important reason to have a problem with it uh, is because you, you think that this is like a uh, important social injustice that like, you know, that, that we should be very concerned for, for the welfare of, of the comedian. Now, sometimes, right? I mean, like, because like, obviously most people who do comedy are not, you know, Dave Chappelle. They're, they're just like people who are like scraping by or losing money, you know, by, by doing it in a, mm-hmm. in a sort of attempt to... Uh, to put together some sort of incredibly precarious career like everybody else is doing, you know, in different forms. Uh, And so sometimes like if somebody suffers undeserved, you know, reputational damage that could have job consequences and other things. Uh, But I think that overall, I'd say uh, that that's probably the least important, uh, the the least important reason. And I'm certainly not worried in any larger sense about, you know, about Dave Chappelle. Uh, And, but then I think the second uh, the second reason, uh, which is by far less important than the third one, but I think it is like, you know, I think it's not nothing, right? Like it's something that if we're going to talk about it, it's worth at least taking a second on and then moving on, uh, is that I think that uh, if you actually like comedy, I think that I think that some of these cultural war dynamics are actually really bad for it as a uh, as a form of entertainment. And, you know, maybe, you know, just to be pretentious about it, sometimes potentially art, uh, because, you end up getting this sort of insufferable woke pseudo comedy that seems to be designed to, you know, elicit that, you know, clapter, you know, rather than laughter. Mm. And then you also get this uh, equally insufferable anti-woke comedy where like even like good specials, uh, you you have to like suffer through 20 minutes of stale, repetitive stuff about how nobody can tell a joke. And, you know, that's bad, you know, that's bad for it too. Uh, so, so that's, so that's one thing, right. I, I think that, I think that it's just like, uh, the whole thing, I think, is just kind of bad for comedy. And since I had a chapter on comedy, I noted that because it just seems like, hey, this is a place to note it. Uh, sure. But then, like, the what's more, you know, getting more into the, the kind of meat of the book, you know, the larger themes. Uh, I think that I think that my biggest problem with it, uh, you know, obviously, yeah, if we're if we're interested in comedy per se, I think, you know, I think like moralistic scolds of any kind make for bad art critics, you know, cause, cause they tend to be really simplistic. Uh, but, uh, but I, I'm also especially concerned when people who I, you know, are part of my, you know, corner of the political spectrum and who are for, as you said earlier, you know, have to kind of hold themselves to, uh, to different standards, you know, and inevitably, uh, you know, present themselves as moralistic scolds. Cause I think it's a really bad look. And I think it's also kind of a really, revealing thing and and i and also by the way i think that like one of the most legitimate criticisms of the uh you know the title of the book is to say hey but wait a second 
you know, you're picking as the representative example for all of the nonsense that's being criticized in the book, canceling comedians, but, you know, hold on, isn't that more like a, you know, I say left in the subtitle, right? Isn't that more of a lib thing? And, you know, fair enough, it is. Uh, although I would also argue that with a lot of the stuff I'm talking about in the book, a lot of these things might originate in, uh, in liberalism, uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that the left is uh, immune from it. I think oftentimes people with left-wing commitments you know, still are sort of reflexively have all the attitudes, uh, you know, that like kind of the liberal side of the culture wars have, and there's a lot of bleed over uh, in practice. And I think that American progressives often have like a really weird attitude uh, towards towards comedy that like, I think that the, um, the denunciation side, uh, like, yeah, don't like, you know, don't start raising money for, for Dave Chappelle. He'll be okay. <laughs> but uh also, it is like really weird uh, to see even like some of the like Slate and Salon reviews of Dave Chappelle specials. Never mind, you know, all of the uh, the internet stuff, uh, because some of it is just like sort of strange and 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 moralistic, and 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 seems to be missing the point to such an extent that you wonder if people know that they're watching something that's intended. Yeah, I mean, as, as the, Americans, we have a terrible relationship with art right now, but I think it's like symptomatic of our society. It's not the cause of it. I mean, if you look at no, like a sure, rotten tomato, I certainly agree with that. Right? If, it's it's a it's a symptom, not a cause. Like it, I, I think it's like maybe a particularly sort of lurid, ridiculous symptom. But then I also think. Like the other half of the argument I make on the, you know, in the comedy chapter is that I think that that's sort of the flip side of this bizarre tendency by a lot of American progressives to, all right, whatever, I'll use the word, uh, glorify comedy. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> in, in ways that also don't really make sense. Uh, so obvious examples of that, you know, from, from, the, from the lib side would be, Things like uh, the John Stewart rally to restore sanity, mm. or things like uh, exactly how excited liberals got in 2016 by that John Oliver Drumpf thing. Uh, <laughs> that like that it's it's almost like there's this weird way that in the collective liberal imagination, uh, like comedy is really politically important or has the potential, you know, at least to to be really politically important. And I think that's kind of the subtext when people get like really like angry about like Dave Chappelle or whatever in ways that's like, I don't know. Like, yeah. They think it's it? more important than it is. They think it's yeah, dangerous because yeah. they think it's powerful to begin with. And it's not, it's the end result of a bunch of shit happening, not the cause. So yeah. It, yeah I mean, I, I think, right. Yeah, exactly. Culture is downstream from politics, but um, that's, you know, uh, but I, I think that there is a kind of like progressive Breitbartism, you know, that thinks that, um, that thinks that uh, that politics is downstream from from culture, and that like if you have that somebody like a uh, stand up comedian has the potential to be this like bold, politically important truth teller, who's going to be like the you know metaphor I use in the book is you know going to be like the equivalent of like the jester who's you know who's going to be the only person who can tell the king you know that the peasants are starving you know that they'll you know they'll be like the canary in the coal mine you know for some really important political thing. Uh, and then, like, so if somebody, you know, they think, oh, they're not playing that role, you know, that they're doing something bad, you know, then. The only thing I wanted to interject with is yeah. that uh, as polarizing as it is, like, perceiving of comedians right now, it has mm -hmm. to feel weirder doing comedy right now. At least, since the last year, at least. I mean, not to project onto Jake and Anders, but the title of your book is what it feels like, like. 
do we need any more relationship observations as like police murders triple over the summer months? You know, it, it, these are questions you ask yourself. And then at a certain point you have to ask like where this stuff is coming from. Like, I, I think the, uh, the impetus to do the, uh, 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 to, to like find somebody who can kind of make a moral hierarchy that we can all rely on is part and parcel of this phenomenon we're all experiencing we're like okay so clearly society does not work anymore <laughs> like uh it is not illegal for a 50 year old to date an 18 year old but you are canceled if you're a 50 year old and you're dating an 18 year old that's like a new law the internet made uh it's to just like reshape the world as yeah. you want it and, 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 a, re- and a really weird internet. one too by the way just just interject on that like i, I see this thing that like suddenly a lot of people seem to have decided and they present this as if this were just like this common sense thing. Everybody knows that there's like a precise like mathematical formula for, uh, for which adults are allowed to date each other. That's like, okay, you have to like half plus eight, (laughs) half plus eight. This is how I always, that's the classic. And we we don't even agree on the formula. (laughs) So like you got to get together on this and have some kind of central body, decide exactly who's allowed to go out with who or else we're going to have a big problem here. This is my point. When you're John Favreau and swingers, you get to make a mathematic formula that we can all use to swing. But now in such political chaos, where can you turn? Like there are definitely people with 35 year age gaps who are in like weird, loving, healthy relationships. We should all aspire to copy. And then like also like almost semi-slavery relationships that we should send you off to an island for being in. And it doesn't feel like you can put those under the same flag at all. Wait, is that and, what happened uh, with the Gates, Bill and Melinda? Don't send those people to an island. Uh, it historically has worked out pretty badly. <laughs> <laughs> they just build a temple. They don't get to pick the island. There's a, this is exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't have a rule, we just have to make it up as we go. Although, although that's kind of a funny example. There's a uh, an essay that uh, Leon Trotsky wrote in I think 1934 you can find online it's called like a letter to American workers uh, where he's, he's speculating about how communist revolution in the United States would play out and a lot of it uh, some of it's like weird uh, that like he says that uh, I guess Trotsky had a big problem with gum chewing and he says like you know I, I, my prediction is within a year of communism you'll stop chewing gum but uh, but some of it is um but some of it is about how being this like uh, this wealthy, developed country, then things can play out in a much less like violent and uh, uh, chaotic way, you know, than they did in Russia. Uh, and uh, and along those lines, he says that um, if the if the new like revolutionary government is concerned enough about not like sort of going to war with small farmers and stuff and letting a socialist economy, you know, uh, absorb more stuff around the edges in a more gradual way, then maybe it could win over everybody except for some recalcitrant millionaires. And then he suggests that we could even, like, give the recalcitrant millionaires some, like, island that they could party on and, you know, like, they could just, like, have that, you know, be their own thing. I think islands are a political necessity we need to start talking about because they do exist and we can send people there. <laughs> well, that that actually, I'm glad you brought that up because something you talk a bit about in the book is sort of this, like, uh, historicism. I don't know if that's the right term for it, but I... I'm curious if this you feel like this is unique to today or the left over the since like post the Cold War. But this is a problem I keep running into where people 
will even say, like, yes, the conditions now are different from 100 years ago in Russia, uh, but then their politics are completely pegged to that, and it's just like there's this wall, but people just can't get over the fact that, like, yeah, maybe living in a bourgeois democracy in the 21st century, you might have a different strategic orientation than Lenin and Trotsky. Like, what do you think for the reason for that is, and has that, like, always been the case? Have leftists always sort of searched for you know, uh, windmills to chase or, like, people from different eras to sort of, like, you know, cosplay as? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, the, certainly on the last part of the question, I think that's probably true to a certain extent. Um, I mean, you know, there's, right, Karl Marx talked about how, you know, the new revolution always clothes itself in the, you know, the costumes of, uh, of the old one. I don't remember the exact quote, but it's something like that. Uh, you know, when he's talking about like 19th century, potentially socialist revolutionary movements sort of using this, like all this like symbolism from like the Jacobins, you know, in the, uh, in the 1790s, um, which, uh, you know, I've, I've also acknowledged the irony of me bringing up that example because I, I write for a magazine called Jacobin. But um, <laughs> in any case, uh, that, so I, I think that in some sense, like I'm sure part of that is perennial that, uh People want to find historical antecedents to help make sense of, of whatever they're doing. Uh, and some of those are going to be anachronistic and weird, you know, and, and that I think is going to be a thing to, to some extent uh, always. But uh, but I do think I do think it's worse now. And I think that the I think that the reason it's worse now uh, goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that uh, the the left like has been, you know, wandering around in the outer darkness for so long that we are just now starting. And I don't want to even assume that it's going to continue because there have been some bad signs, but we're just now starting to get to a point where, um, where like being a socialist in the United States is somewhat pegged to things that are organically happening uh, politically right now in the United States. Uh, because before that, like before, you know, rough, I mean, pretty much, I think we can date it back to like Bernie Sanders, like running for president the first time, uh, you know, starting in 2015. Before that, you know, most socialists were going to be like kind of like antiquarian book nerds, uh, which is still true to some extent, you know, and, and I'm certainly not exempting myself. Uh, but uh, but I, I think it's true to a wildly greater extent that, you know, people would get their perspective on um you know, on radical politics and how to think about it, like not primarily from uh, things going on in the class struggle in the society they actually live in, uh, but from reading about, um, you know, reading about past, you know, revolutions, reading about, you know, reading the works of, you know, of, of past radical theorists uh, from oftentimes very different countries and very different times. And I'm not saying that nobody should read that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I certainly would never want to say that. Uh, but I do think that there is a lot of copy and pasting because if, if you basically, you know, like if you remember the nineties, you know, what that was like, and you know, I mean, it was bad, right? Like, like I am old enough that I, I, I can remember that. And, uh, you know, I was, I was a, you know, teenager then, but, you know, but I was, I was already interested in radical politics and, uh, and back then, uh, like basically if, if you were a leftist, if you had those inclinations, and you actually wanted to participate in real politics to some extent, your options were that either in practice you become a cheerleader for like Democrats, mm-hmm. uh, just just like regular Democrats, or 
you sort of sit in the corner angrily, you know, rereading the collected works of Marx and Engels, uh, you know, which was always my preference out of those two. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of this is probably self-criticism. Uh, but uh, but then, like, that leads to some dangerous stuff because if you end up just sort of copying and pasting uh, from uh, those past, you know, revolutionary thinkers or whatever, then you end up with a lot of stuff that doesn't really make sense in the time and place that you're that you're in. Like you end up saying, oh, um, well, you can't do things in Democratic Party primaries because, uh, you know, that's a bourgeois party and, you know, you need your own separate party. And so, you know, you should be trying to do that. And I'm not saying there's nothing to that. I'm sure we could have a I don't even know what everybody here's positions is on that. Maybe we could have like a long and interesting discussion. About We're pseudo left uh, sheepdogs or okay. I am. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Right. I'm a Posadist. I believe in the <laughs> dolphins. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So, um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, if at least, at least that's a plan, right? I mean, right. like when they're like telepathic dolphins, you know, like, like, help us, you know, like, like then eventually, right. There's some way that we could actually, uh, actualize this, but I would argue, right. As a pseudo left sheepdog that it's, uh, that, like a lot of that's based on some thoughts about how parties work that really comes out of a European context and makes very little sense in the United States where like what we call political parties are just very different uh, creatures in practice. Uh, and uh, and then I, I think it also comes up with a lot of the, uh, the anti-fascist stuff uh, because, you know, people sort of do this thing where they like read Trotsky talking about like fighting fascists in the streets and uh, and they they kind of orient around that, and they end up like spending their time kind of like picking street fights with some you know weird like far right cosplayers who have like twenty members, uh, and and it's something. I, I guess all this is just to say that like I'm not going to say that it's a totally unique problem to right now because I'm, I'm sure that's not true, but I think that given that the left is coming out of this period where uh, just to be interested in leftism was probably primarily a historical and theoretical thing rather than a practical political thing. I think that right now it's probably worse than it used to be. Right. Well, it's funny you bring up the, you know, the 90s and people flocking to the Democratic Party because I remember seeing recently someone look, uh, posted DSA's endorsements, and we forgot it was an organization in the 90s, from like, you know, 96 or something, and it was just like every, they just were rushing to give anyone an endorsement who like voted against NAFTA or like was kind yeah. of skeptical of NAFTA, and now it's, I think there's a lot of progress, you know, we, we've changed, like we're not going to them, they're coming to us, and we have standards uh, that people have to meet before we endorse them. Um, but on the Antifa point, uh, mm. I know you say in the book that you're not prepared to totally you know, dismiss Antifa altogether. Um, but, and the point is taken about, it is different from, you know, the 20s and 30s where the fascism was a much more predominant force. But uh, do you agree with the premise that in now, that now it is still important to um, disrupt and prevent fascists from organizing uh, or else they can possibly like metastasize? Yeah, I don't think I do. I think, uh, I mean, I think that it's sort of worth, uh, you know, worth keeping an eye on because when circumstances change, uh, they, they, they could, you know, they could play that role. There, there's certainly other places in the world today uh, where, where like actual like fascist street gangs uh, are a, uh, are a major problem. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly like Brazil or, uh, or Greece, you know, with, with golden Dawn, you know, would, would, mm. would be obvious examples 
So, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not prepared to sit here and say that like there's absolutely no possibility that uh, the United States could evolve in that direction, in which case, um, you know, in which case you certainly would need to uh, play, you know, fight fire with fire. Uh, I'm not convinced that sort of um, that going out and and having like brawls uh, with uh, with with like tiny organizations to uh, to stop them from organizing is going to be a net benefit right now. I think that if we were in a situation where there was a real danger that they were going to metastasize uh, into, into a major threat, you know, like, 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 you know, Brazil where they you know, have like the actual like right-wing paramilitary gangs that like will, will control territory just like drug mm-hmm. gangs do, or maybe in some cases, well, you know, are, are involved in stuff like that, you know, like, like that, that it, I, I'm not convinced that if that, if that happened, like if, if historical conditions were such that something like that were going to have to have to happen here, then uh, then the the left kind of doing the sorts of things that it does right now would actually uh, would actually prevent that metastasization. And I'm also a little worried about uh, having this kind of, uh, of of street violence that is often uh, like you know it's often not great, right? Like I mean, people people do. Um, you know, like, like, I don't, I I mean, there's a balance because I don't want to like, you know, I don't want to give undue credence to like right-wing hysteria about it, you know, which, which is often just factually wrong. Uh, But I also think that a lot of people, the things that people do in the name of, of, of Antifa are, uh, are not good. uh, And, uh, and that they, uh, and that they could certainly, they certainly don't, uh, they're certainly not an advertisement, you know, for, for the left that, that I would want. Uh, And, and I do think, I mean, maybe I'm just being like, way too much of a squishy Menshevik about this, that like, uh, I do think that we'd be better off if whatever sort of Antifa kinds of activities we had were much more organized and disciplined uh, and uh, and defensive, right? Well, so like they, they could be like the, um, you know, they could sort of be the guardian angels for protests, you know, making sure that, you know, that you didn't have any, you know, fascists or, you know, right-wing weirdos who, uh, who, who, who attacked anybody, you know, but, uh, but, they, but they wouldn't like sort of go out in the way that some anti-fi activists it seems to me sometimes seem to do sort of like looking to, uh, you know, looking to, uh, to, to start a fight. So you can get like sort of extreme examples, uh, like the, um, like the attack on, on Andy No, who is certainly not an individual who I feel any sympathy for, but, uh, but I, I also think that's like very not good for that to happen. Well, I mean, the whole thrust of the argument you're making in the book kind of it seems to be this, like, the, the, the net loss sort of thing of the, the back of the napkin Matthews and the book sort of, you know, works out, hey, you know, there's utility and then there's something working against you and all these things. And I think that's, like, I don't know. I, I don't know if I really agree with you here in the case of Antifa, mm-hmm. especially because what Antifa is is, like, a not an organization organization. Right. It's a practice. It's really complicated and... Anyone who puts on a black hoodie and goes out and does anything can be Antifa. They can call themselves Antifa, what they're doing. Someone else can just take a picture of you and then say this is Antifa or whatever. So there's no, there's, there's no way to like organize this in a way where you have any control over optics. And I, uh, I think the best way to deal with it is 
you know, our friend Andy from Antifada, who uh, mm-hmm. had my mixer earlier, um, <laughs> he you know, he wrote a really great piece that we talked about on the show called the Anti Anti Antifada, where he sort of worked out you know philosophically like the argument, and I think that eventually what he sort of arrived at, if I remember correctly, is just that the, the, a lot of what people are getting wrong about arguing against this is that they're they're operating on the premise that this is the revolution entirely encapsulated in an action when it is just it's uh what is the word it's it's um defensive it, it's defensive and it's also like um it, something doesn't have to be i was a really good ten dollar word i'm missing here but something doesn't have to be sufficient Glor- glorification sufficient in order to be uh good mm. it is it's just a piece of the operation or whatever and also, another thing I got to tell you, something that just kept ringing in my head while I was reading this book is, mm-hmm. as a comedian, and I'm going to keep saying that like I'm a goddamn liberal, <laughs> because it is an identity um, that I... Speaking as a comedian. <laughs> speaking as a marginalized uh, comedian who, I don't know, what does that mean? I do improv or something? I don't know. So, uh, but as a, honestly, as a fucking comic, somebody thinks in comedic yeah. terms all the time, I, I think I fucking have a laser in my head for caricatures of people and for building resentment and scapegoating and stuff like that because you often do that in comedy and I've noticed it happen this translates to politics and it is a thing that speaks to people and evokes a reaction from them in the same way that when you're on stage and you're just trying to get people riled up about something you know the skill there's a reason that so many fucking alt-right people come out of comedies they develop this skill by uh, ginning up resentment about liberals and shit like that and woke people and the PC police and stuff in comedy circles and that translates really easily to the week after fucking Charlottesville happened all of this out of seemingly out of nowhere overnight all of this shit that used this amorphous figure of Antifa cropped up and it became very useful for them and I just don't I don't see a point in, in fighting it because you can't define the parameters of this fucking situation. And I guess I worry it becomes a little hypocritical when we're, we're worried about the respectability of people that are fighting fascists and we're apologizing for Andy No because he's a technically a journalist. I, to me, this, this seems like it's, 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 um, it's too apologetic to like institutions like academia and journalism that to me as a dirtbag don't fucking matter i don't care if andy no is technically a journalist that doesn't mean i'm not gonna throw a fucking milkshake in his face i think throwing milkshakes at andy no is hilarious and i think i I, I think if all that had happened to him was that uh was that a a milkshake had been thrown at him uh that would be a lot easier to uh to find funny because it's it's like a it's it's a symbolic you know it's it's a um like, I mean, that itself is, is kind of a, uh, a comic gesture, uh, you know, but I think that... I but he's like a soccer we, player. You hit him with a milkshake and he fucking goes, oh, my God, all my bones have been broken. <laughs> okay, okay. But, but to be fair, in this particular example, uh, he wasn't just hit by, hit by a milkshake, right? He was also, like, hit by fists. And, but he's you know, the yeah. biggest asshole in the world. Like, you can't... No, I, I, someone I mean, is I'm going to gonna, kick that guy's ass and, you, and I, they're I'm going to just say it's Antifa. A, I'm not going to argue that it's not an asshole, uh, but uh, but but I do think that having uh, I do think that like that beating up um, a like unarmed and extremely physically unassuming uh, person uh, is is not great. And, but and who think- did that? He went to a fucking you know, thing that was like potentially going to break out into a riot. It's just people out in the mob. Like you, the, you're letting Tucker Carlson define the person that beat up 
Andy know as someone who's like organizes with us or whatever, but no one has any control over it. It's just a random. Yeah. And, and I would feel better about, about that argument. Uh, if I, uh, if I hadn't seen so many people, uh, who, who I know in, in, in left media and maybe I'm making, you know, an equivalent mistake on a meta level there. I'm thinking that that matters more than it does, which is maybe a professional danger of, uh, of doing this. But, uh, but I think, you know, I, I saw way too many people I knew in left media for comfort, you know, sort of saying like, Oh good. I'm, I'm you know glad that happened or, or, or sort of being very defensive about it uh, in ways that to my mind kind of, uh, kind of missed the point. Like even saying things like, uh, like, Oh, this is like the best thing that, you know, that could have happened to him, uh, which, which I never, I never understood why that wasn't taken to the next step, which is, Hey, if this is the best thing that could have ever happened to him, why do him the favor? But the, these people figure out ways to martyr themselves all the time. Like there's literally, we're talking about pacifism at this point. I mean, we would right, literally so, have so, to get. So, so why, like if they're going to, if they're looking for ways to martyr, martyr themselves, like why make it easier for them? Why give them that gift? Because reality is subjective and we're living in hyper-normalization and, and anyone that wants to make themselves a martyr by being canceled by the woke mob can just make it up. The factual reality of this stuff does not matter to the people who eat that stuff up. The people who are like bloodthirsty and they, they just love the idea of it. It happens to me all yeah, the time. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, this might be one of the biggest like sort of big picture, you know, disagreements that, you know, that I, I think that it's certainly true, you know, that if you're if you're in a, a, a war that is, among other things, a, a propaganda war, a rhetorical war, an optics war, you know, which is, I think, inevitably you know, what a lot of, you know, a lot of political persuasion, a lot of political organizing just is going to be, I think that's inescapable. Uh, then I think, I think it's a real mistake to go from, uh, they're going to lie. They're going to make stuff up. Uh, they're going to try to present whatever does happen in the worst possible light, all of which is true to therefore like, don't worry about it. It's fine. Uh, you know, it's not a problem to make it super easy for them and give them, and give them golden material, like because because I, I I think that the I think the first part's right, but uh, but I, I I do think it's a useful instinct to resist the second part. I think there's like a gradient nature to this, where like the people that actually represent us politically, yeah, they should be careful about this sort of stuff. Bernie Sanders should not throw a milkshake <laughs> at someone, regardless of how funny well, I think that would Bernie be. Bernie Sanders threw a milkshake at someone, that'd be so hilarious. That yeah. that. Be, uh, but uh, they could have just in the task force negotiation they did with Biden, they could have just thrown away all the policies and just let us see that him throwing a milkshake at Biden. He's just hitting him with silly string on the debate stage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is uh, problematic. I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, see, see how I waited until all the way to the end here to actually get into yelling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, fuck, man. These are huge problems that we might not be able to figure out today. But, uh, you know, but I, I respect where you're coming from, though, for sure. I appreciate that. Um, does anyone have anything else we want to really get to? I know we're at like about a little over an hour. We should probably wrap up here. I think that's good. It's, we're probably going to get uh, yelled at online for this. That's all right. It's very yeah. lucrative. That's how right. we make money. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be as good for you as getting beaten up was for exactly. For yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. All, you know, but we, I don't we actually hate you. Like I hate Andy. Though, so I'm cool with it. <laughs> Me either, man. In fact, I think I, I think I might even call you friend. Um, <laughs> 
This would have been funny if we had just faked it and just got made a bloodthirsty, like, um, angry, uh, controversial podcast and then became millionaires off of it because we got canceled. It's but not too late. It's not too late. Let's redo it. All right. Uh, <laughs> Well, anyway, Ben, uh, thank you very much. Please let my listeners know where they can uh, find you and where they can read your work and your new book. Yeah. Uh, so you can find me at uh, benburgess.com as a sort of, you know, probably easier than, uh, than, than going to find everything uh, else a la carte. Uh, and then uh, the as far as the book, it is available at all the usual, you know, book places. Uh, but if you, uh, if you don't feel like buying it from uh, Jeff Bezos sweatshop uh, and, uh, and, and you'd, you'd prefer, you know, that, uh, that nobody had to uh, piss in a bottle over the course of uh, packaging or send it to you. Uh, there's uh, red Emma's, which is a workaround bookstore in Baltimore that you can order books from online. So that's red Cool. No one's pissing in a bottle at Ranabas unless they want to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if that's just what they wanted, like, like if they just prefer pissing in bottles to <laughs> pissing in urinals, like that's that's just like their thing. Then I I would assume that since it's harder to fire somebody from a co-op, you know, they can probably do that if they want to. Uh, but I don't think anybody's doing it because they're worried about not making quota. Yeah, yeah it's just freeing is all. <laughs> Just don't have to go all over the bathroom. All right. Uh, <laughs> all right. Let's do plugs and get the hell out of here. Anybody else got anything? Anders, go ahead. You can cancel me at Andersley here on Twitter, uh, Dursley1 on Instagram, and check out my other job, Redacted Tonight, which is on RT America. You can find it on YouTube and portal, portable.tv. Nice. Alex Patek. Follow me on Twitter.com at Patek Jokes. I still didn't change it. And again, you can find and cancel Anders at Andersley here. <laughs> uh, my handle on everything is at Feral Jokes. It's an anagram for my name. You can find me and cancel me. Odds are someone is already canceling me. You want to see my dick? You can Google me. I, <laughs> my dudes are all over the internet. Um, what else? We have merch. Uh <laughs> It's listed in the show notes, and we also have a Patreon. If you're a new listener and you don't know what that is, bonus episodes in Discord. Oh, my God, only $5. Check it out. Um, and oh, and uh, Phone Bank for Public Power, NYC, and uh, Karishma Mehta, also running, to mix it up, not to New York. She's in uh, Northern Virginia running for delegate uh, DSA endorsed. Please Phone Bank and donate to her. Oh, yeah. Shouts out to uh, New York. DSA Eco-Socialist Working Group, who we've been phone banking for and stuff for the public power campaign. They were on the show. Um, hey, guess what? The 21st of this month, May 2021, I'm doing live stand-up at some place called the B Cafe. This will be my first live show since the one I did last year. Um, so come out and throw milkshakes at me and cancel me and yell at me. As long as you buy a ticket, I don't give a shit. All right, um, it's finished. It's finished.